this week on the Back Table Podcast. So kind of the question within the question that you're asking is, is very, very spot on. You know, it's really kind of the things you do early on kind of frame what you do later on. And in some ways, you have to be a little bit careful to say, you know, sometimes when you're just coming out, you just think any kind of volume is good. And that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you really want to be very intentional about saying, no, 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 you know, I really don't have to do this. I really want to do this and kind of work towards what you want. You know, everything else kind of comes. I think the money comes and everything else, you know, kind of comes. But the happiness of what you do, that's the hardest part to figure out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source of all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Backtable.com. I'm Jose Ochesil as your host this week, and we have the pleasure of having Dr. Sami Patel. Uh, he's a urologist here in the Orlando area. Uh, he's in the same group of, as I am. We're partners in sort of sense. I mean, we're all hospital employees, but sort of partners. Uh, he did residency in Mount Sinai, in New York, and then he went to do a andrology internship, uh, fertility fellowship at Illinois. So welcome, Samit. Thank you, Jose. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So Samit, so, so you did a fellowship uh, in, in fertility in Illinois. Can you work through the process of how you went into infertility into the, this subspecialty? Yeah, sure. So you know, when I was at Sinai, um, certainly, you know, you, just like any other resident, right, you're drinking out of a fire hose. You can't really learn enough when you're in residency. And, you know, I think that <laughs> in a lot of ways, you kind of do the fellowship in the stuff that you don't know how to do. So, you know, when I was going through fellowship in or when I was going through residency, rather, in Sinai, you know, I, I certainly, you know, you see a lot of the stuff everyone else sees, right? You see a lot of stones, you see a lot of cancer, you see a lot of BPH, you know, you see voiding dysfunction, but you don't normally see a lot of fertility. And so you kind of have to make the effort to kind of do that stuff because unless you're in a program that really, you know, kind of emphasizes it, and there aren't a lot of programs that really emphasize it, then you don't really see it. So, you know, for me, at least, that's kind of what led me to it because it was kind of, I felt like a gap in what I was doing. And so I started doing it and started getting into it and saying, oh, gosh, this stuff is really, really cool. And I think that probably is what drove me to do the fellowship. And were you thinking of private practice afterwards or you, you ever thought about academia? Yeah. So that, that's a really good question. Yeah, I'm very, you know, <laughs> I'm in a really different place than I would have expected myself. You know, 10 years ago, I definitely expected me to be in some sort of academic center or, you know, something kind of like that, where really all I'd be doing is infertility and maybe, you know, helping out the guys with general urology. But, you know, for the most part, 90% of what I'd be doing is fertility. But, you know, there aren't a lot of guys in the country that are like that. There are a few and, you know, they really do, you know, do a very good job. I mean, they're the ones that keep the field moving forward. But a lot of us guys that are kind of, you know, that don't do it, you know, 100% of our time, you still get a lot done because there aren't that many people. So, you know, you, you really still do get to see a lot of fertility. And it ends up being just because, like I said, you know, a lot of residency, you, you know, you don't, a lot of residencies, you don't really see it that much. So you don't end up, you know, when you're out, you know, most people just kind of refer it to the infertility guy. So, you know, wherever you are, you're, you, you're going to get referrals for it, but it's just going to be hard to be a hundred percent guy unless you're really committed to being kind of the academic guy. Yeah, and that's probably, I mean, for example, myself, I do the semi-analysis, do the, the, the initial workup, and then, hey, 
go to somebody that knows about this, this topic more than I do. And, and like you said, in residency, I didn't got any exposure at all. Uh, just what we read on the Campbell's, we were studying for the boards and all that stuff. That's the only exposure that we had. So you went to private practice. What, when you started doing a private practice, were you doing a lot of, of infertility first or, or 30% infertility, 70% general? How was your deal? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, initially when I started coming out, you know, I was definitely doing probably about 40% infertility, maybe about another 20, 30%, uh, you know, kind of ED, sexual dysfunction. And then, you know, the rest kind of general urology, any comers. But it actually started shifting much more towards the general urology and, you know, less of the infertility, not because of numbers, just because of percentage, you know, where, where we're at, you know, we're obviously very busy. And so, um, both, you know, all of us, right. All of us in the group, you two, you know, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, people say fortunately, but I'm not so sure. So I think that you end up kind of doing the same amount, but just percentage wise, much less, you know, depending on your, you know, kind of the way you set yourself up. So kind of the question within the question that you're asking is, is very, very spot on, you know, it's really kind of the things you do early on kind of frame what you do later on. And in some ways you have to be a little bit careful to say, you know, sometimes when you're just coming out, you just think any kind of volume is good. And that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you really want to be very intentional about saying, no, 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 you know, I really don't have to do this. I really want to do this and kind of work towards what you want. You know, everything else kind of comes. I think the money comes and everything else, you know, kind of comes. But the happiness with what you do, that's the hardest part to figure out. It sounds like, I mean, the community needs what drove your practice rather than, than, than what you wanted in that sense. Or, I mean, you want academia at some point or you thought you, you like the research and, 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 and that part of, of the, the investigation and what the uh, infertility science to it. I mean, that, that is very interesting, but the community needs drove you to the more general urology. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, I would advise anybody, you know, any resident or fellow listening to this to be, you know, really, really intentional about, you know, what you want to do versus, you know, what you have to do. Okay. And then you were in private practice and then your practice got bought by the hospital. Did it change your percentage in terms of fertility being in hospital employed? Well, so, you know, when I first came over, it, it ended up being, you know, I, I was in a hospital practice, but it was run like a private practice. So, you know, with our group, you know, we were the first, you know, we were one of the first ones of our group, you know, back then, geez, it wasn't even, you know, our, our group has gone through so many name changes. At that point, it was FHMG that then changed to FPMG, or maybe it was FPMG that changed to FHMG, then changed to AHMG. I mean, there's so many acronyms for these things. But I think way back then it was FPMG, which was Florida Physicians Medical Group, which was really kind of, you know, siloed. It was, it was run like a private practice. You know, you kind of ate what you kill. There was no RVUs sort of thing. It was really more just kind of there as, you know, just kind of an overhead minus, you know, collections minus overhead sort of thing. You know, of course, that, you know, that became problematic because then you couldn't really control your overhead. Then the FPMG ended up acquiring a big urology group in town and kind of forming the basis of the group that, you know, then that still exists today. And, you know, at that time, it was more kind of a bunch of satellites kind of loosely linked just in name only. But over time, you know, we've always, you know, we've kind of grown more and more together and, uh, 
you know, that that's really been, that's been really great, actually. But you're right. It, it, initially, it was kind of more of a private sort of thing. And now we're kind of moving more and more towards like a real kind of group sort of setting. And it sounds good. I mean, I definitely we, we, we're doing more stuff as a group and, and that's great for us. I mean, that, that's, that's part of what we're here uh, in the group. So, so Samir, let, let's talk about infertility. Let's say a guy walks in and he says, hey, uh, I want to know my fertility status. Do you go into explaining, hey, if you're not having kids, there's no need for to do that? I mean, or do you do a seminalysis on the, that patient? Usually what I, what I start with is I'll look at a few things. So most of the, most of the time it's the wife telling the guy to come in. So, you know, it's very rare that the guy just comes in by themselves, but most of the time that's predicated by the fact that they've been trying to conceive for some time. Now, you know, we, we do have recommendations as far as that goes. Um, generally we say that if they've, you know, if a couple has been trying for a year and hasn't, haven't conceived, both the male and female partner should be evaluated. It's important to note though, of those that don't conceive after a year, 50% do in the second year. So. But having said that, there are some kind of tweaks to that older age. So over 35, especially maternal age over 35, that's really when we start to say both parties should be evaluated at six months or less. Certainly above 40, it's really as soon as you make the decision, it really should be something that's done as soon as possible for maternal age. I think that uh, most of the time when a guy comes in and says, listen, I, you know, I, I'm interested in fertility, it's kind of figuring out that part of the conversation. Well, how long have you been trying and you know, why are you interested? Um, there are some guys that come in just to kind of see because they're just doing some family planning, which, you know, it's, I see more and more of that. I didn't used to see that as much at the beginning of my practice 10 years ago. And, and that's why I ask. I mean, that what you mentioned, the family planning, I see it more often. And they, they come to the office expecting that you're going to order some something. So if you tell them, hey, w w wait until you cannot have a kid for a year and then come back. That that's not what they want. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is kind of consumer driven now because, you know, what happens too is that uh, you have to remember that this happens in the background where there's a lot more straight to consumer things available, even then, you know, when we started, you know, 10 years ago, it ends up being that a lot of times they'll take a take home kit and, you know, that take home kit doesn't give them a number. It, it just kind of says, oh, well, you may have an issue. And there isn't any kind of specifics on it. So they may say, you know, oh, I had this take-home kit and, you know, it said I had an issue. And, you know, that certainly prompts a semen analysis. Sometimes it's just somebody that comes in that says, look, you know, my wife wants to know if I can get her pregnant or my girlfriend or partner or whatever. You know, so at that point, you know, usually I oblige and say, okay, we'll do a semen analysis. But usually what I like to do isn't just start with a semen analysis. I like to start with you know, really um, all the things that could be wrong with the semen analysis, because you really want, you know, by the time they come the second time, especially because a lot of fertility isn't covered by insurance, you really want to make the most of each appointment that you get. Exactly. So, so you do the semen analysis, what, what other labs are you, are you ordering for that patient? So really, when it comes down to fertility, they're really one of four things that it could be due to in broad strokes. It could be due to genetic things, environmental things, anatomic things, or hormonal things. So as far as the genetic things goes, you know, the problem is, you know, we're getting better at far, as far as that goes. But, you know, it still is things like microchip arrays that, you know, that'll probably be what's available to account for 90% of the defects. And we only really check for 10% of the defects. And, people that are azospermic or severely oligosthenospermic. 
And that's, you know, a Y chromosome microdeletion and, and, a, um, and a karyotype. If we see evidence of obstructive azospermia, then we do a cystic fibrosis screen. But usually we don't start with the genetic test because we want to figure out if it's obstructive or not obstructive before doing those tests. So as far as the hormonal things go, uh, what we talk about there is testosterone. And basically the, the reasoning behind this is because the concentration of testosterone within the testes is about 40 to 100 times that in blood. It's incredibly concentrated in there. And the reason, of course, being that it needs to be that concentrated in order for sperm to grow and divide. So essentially when you're getting a blood testosterone, it's a window into what's going on in the testes. So we'll get a testosterone. I usually get an SHBG and an albumin to get a bioavailable testosterone to calculate that. You can order a free testosterone, and ideally a free testosterone is a perfect test. The problem is that it's often not done perfectly. So um, the problem with a free testosterone is that sometimes they'll use an ELISA test instead of dialyzing the specimen. Yeah, just because, you know, what lab wants to sit there and dialyze a specimen to figure out, you know, what it is, it's just too labor intensive. So often a cheaper way of doing that is getting an SHBG and albumin to calculate a bioavailable testosterone or a free testosterone that way. And that can give you just a better view of what's going on in the testes. I get an FSH and LH level and uh, I get an estradiol level. You know, I don't normally get DHT levels. I'll get a prolactin level if there's symptoms. I think the problem with getting a prolactin level off the bat, it's a little bit tricky because sometimes that could be a big red herring. Sometimes you can get prolactin levels that are kind of in the 20 to 50 range that may not really be the reason. That's not, it's a, there are common reasons for that prolactin to be elevated. And sometimes that kind of takes you down a rabbit hole and you start a medication that you may not need otherwise. I think that TSH levels and T4 levels can be useful. Again, you know, usually I do those for the people that I don't see anything else wrong with. So kind of as secondary testing, not necessarily as primary testing, but there's nothing wrong with, you know, ordering it as a primary test. Rare cause for uh, subfertility, but certainly can't, it's not, you know, not unheard of. I'll do a physical exam. Um, you know, most people, you know, as far as the anatomic things go, uh, most people kind of look at that as just a way of looking at a varicocele. But of course, you know, you're feeling for vas, you're feeling for, you know, the, the way the vas feels, is it atretic, is it there or not? You also are looking for testicular size, which really becomes really important, not just the location in the scrotum of the testes, but also the actual size. I physically measure it. I got this tool that nobody will go near because they all think that they have, you know, scrotum juice on it, you know, but I clean it. And um, it's essentially a caliper that I, that I use to actually physically check uh, testicular size. And then, you know, I, I talk about environmental reasons with the patient that could be affecting fertility. You know, I, I talk about uh, things that could be useful, diet, exercise, sleep. Those are, you know, basic things, you know, different types of foods that could be useful. And then one of the other things that I do end up talking about uh, more, more and more, so a couple of things that I almost always mention. The first is a vitamin coenzyme Q10. It's one of the, you know, few vitamins, you know, we, we have a lot of data when it comes to vitamins, just not a lot of good data. And the good data we have don't necessarily show that it does much of anything, you know, for the most part. And there are a few exceptions when you don't find anything else, then it may be useful to go down that route. But for the most part, one of the few vitamins that we have placebo-controlled data showing benefit is coenzyme Q10. Those studies were initially done with 200 milligrams twice a day, so 400 milligrams a day. The ubiquinone or, you know, some of the more bioavailable forms can be 300 milligrams a day. Those studies were done and validated. So that, that ends up being a useful conversation too. One of the more common conversations I'm having more and more now is with uh, marijuana. 
So we're seeing a lot more marijuana use that are probably, you know, the, the jury's in some ways still out for marijuana that probably has something to do with the variability of androgen receptors and specifically the estrogen mimetic uh, effects of THC. So there is some variability there, you know, and you see that, you know, some people will come in and say, well, why do I have to worry about marijuana? My neighbor smokes all day, every day, and he's got 10 kids. <laughs> and I say, it's like, well, okay, but it, you know, that's, it normally is kind of a dose related thing. And, you know, if you have a subtype that's susceptible, then you, you may very well be at risk. And you will, for marijuana, for example, do you expect a specific uh, finding on a semen analysis or is just uh, low, lower chances of, of fertility? Yeah, no, you, you do end up seeing a stress pattern to it. Okay. Um, so kind of a, so, you know, kind of this OAT, oligostheno, teratosospermia. Okay. You know, it, and again, you know, because it's so dose dependent, it's, you know, difficult to quantitate, you know, and there are studies looking at this, but yeah, it does become difficult to quantitate because it's very difficult for people even to express, you know, and sometimes it's difficult to get a true answer in terms of what their actual marijuana use is. You know, I don't know that there's been good studies looking at method of uh, THC intake, like is smoking worse or better than, you know, oral or, you know, what role does CBD oil, how much does that really get absorbed? Uh, how much does cannabinoid versus THC really make a difference? Uh, I, I'm not sure we have the answer to all those things. And for CoQ10, do we recommend that everybody has issues or again, a specific type of, of, of patient? You know, usually I recommend it across the board. Okay. I think that um, obviously it's going to be less important for people that have, you know, something like Kleinfelters or Y chromosome microbiology, or just yeah, a, yeah or, or just azospermia in general. Okay. Or right, yeah, if you have something like in, you know, globospermia where there's a true genetic defect that you don't have the acrosome cap. So obviously those patients need IVF. But there are, you know, People that, of course, it, you don't know. But when you have this initial conversation with people, you don't necessarily know where they're coming from. Sometimes you have the semen analysis coming from a referral center. Most of the time you do. Most of the time, you know, when you're doing this for a while, most of your referrals come from REs, from reproductive endocrinologists, or maybe even OBs in the area. But for the patient that we had mentioned before, that's just kind of coming out of the blue, then sometimes you don't have that. So you do recommend it off the bat. Now, well, I'm definitely going to stop doing prolactin. Because like, like you said, I'm, most of the time, it just brings problems. The patients start, hey, why is it 40 or why is it 39? Well, let's repeat it. But, but what, is, what does it mean? What does it mean? So most of the time, it just brings more. Yeah. yeah, it happens quite often. And then, you know, what happens is that you end up, a lot of these guys end up getting MRIs and they end up saying, you know, getting, you know, saying, oh, there's a microadenoma there. And, you know, if you were to do MRIs, and you'd find a lot of asymptomatic microadenomas. It's just, you know, sometimes it ends up being a rabbit hole you wish you didn't do. Exactly. And I end, end up sending it to the endocrinologist. Uh, then they call because they cannot find a, an appointment with the endocrinologist. And really, it's just a, a mess all around. Uh, so, so let's say, uh, Samir, you do a semi-analysis. And this is something that I don't know if it happens to you in your practice, but I will say, I don't know, 90% of the patients all then have leukocytes and realm cells. Uh, what what does that that mean? Yeah, so that that's really it's a good question. You know, the the problem with that is that it really depends. A semen analysis is really dependent on the lab, and you really want to send your semen analysis to a lab that does a lot of them. Uh, the problem we have in town here is that our lab, and it's our parent lab, so you know I feel a little guilty saying this, but our parent lab kind of sucks when it comes to a semen analysis. You know, you'll see them constantly mentioning leukocytes and. You know, you really, on an initial semen analysis, it's very difficult to tell if a round cell is truly a leukocyte or if it's just an immature sperm cell. 
you know, most of the time, you, you know, the labs that kind of do more of this, they'll do some form of immunostaining or a pyospermia stain to actually kind of see, well, what, what is this really? And, uh, you know, a, a good one, you know, it, for those people listening that may not have access to a lab, there's a company called Reprosource that actually will mail the lab. You know, they'll do, they can do it at home and they mail it back. There's another company called Fellow that has a home kit. So if you're not near a place that does a good semen analysis, or even if you are and you just, you know, they would prefer to do it at home, those are good options as well as your referring REI lab. And most REI labs have an andrologist there that are, that's really good at making these subtle distinctions. But, you know, most times, you know, kind of like a hospital lab may or may not have that. Yeah, and that's, I used to use another lab, I mean, or, or another the, the infertility clinic facility, and, and they were very good, but you know, they're, they're pushing towards using more of the parent lab. And now that's when, when we get into trouble. So Samit, you mentioned those, uh, labs that you send it by mail. I thought that you had needed to do it like in, in a place that was next to the, uh, lab so that they do it, run it fast. I mean, is that not true? Yeah, so the, there's been a lot of advances in terms of how a semen analysis is done. And you'd think that, you know, how could there be advances? You know, this has been done for the last hundred years. I mean, there's ever since there was a microscope, I'm sure the first guy that got a microscope put his own semen on there to see his sperm. You know, that's what guys do. But having said that, it's actually, um, there there have been a lot of advances in terms of the auger and the, uh, you know, the ability to actually kind of suspend a lot of this uh, sperm and, you know, usually we think, oh, well, it has to go immediately because you have to be able to, otherwise the motility will be off or, but the, these labs have actually validated their work in, in terms of the agar they use when the, the, in the collection method they use that it can actually just be sent room temperature and their, their results are pretty well validated. So there was actually a push, my mentor, uh, Dr. Niederberger, he actually had kind of worked on a design where it was like this thing you attach to your, um, your iPhone. So it's kind of like a little iPhone device that actually can measure it. So you can actually like do a computer assisted sperm analysis. It's called CASA. Whoa. And you can kind of do it just on your iPhone. So th there's been a lot of actual advances in, um, in the way semen analyses are performed where it doesn't necessarily have to be. Now, most semen analyses are still performed that way. Most are still, you know, within a 30 minute window where, you know, you have to either bring it to the lab really soon or kind of do it at the lab. And those still, of course, the, the, those still are very useful in the right kind of hands. But there are other options that kind of account for those variabilities and still are able to give you good results. So good to know. I didn't know that. So let's talk about, again, the, the, the local sites. I, may, I, I think uh, since I see it all the time, <laughs> I, I was focused on that. Uh, but if the patient has tru truly has local sites and round cells, do you first do a urine, uh, urine uh, semen culture or you do antibiotics? What do you do with that? Yeah, so usually antibiotics plus or minus uh, something like a prednisone. You know, prednisone is kind of, you know, it, it's a little bit more controversial in terms of uh, giving it because there can be issues, you know, with long-term use of prednisone and actual the sperm counts themselves, among other things with the prednisone wean. But uh, certainly antibiotics is a mainstay of treatment, about four weeks of antibiotics. Now, you know, usually with a pyospermia stain, you'll start with something like that. Also, plus or minus um, anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs. There's, you know, some data suggesting that NSAIDs may be harmful for sperm. I'm not sure that's really strong data, but I'm not sure that NSAIDs necessarily help with pyospermia much anyway. But having said that, as far as doing a semen culture, that ends up being highly controversial because there hasn't been really good evidence linking uh, semen culture to actual, you know, to, to the source of the pyospermia. I mean, you would 
you know, the pyospermia almost assuredly comes from the prostate. That's about 30% of the ejaculate, right? And uh, seminal vesicles are another 60%. So in other words, you, you'll have a lot of people where you'll do a semen culture and it'll come back in pterococcus. I mean, almost always it'll, it'll come back, you know, in pterococcus. And, and, you know, the question with that is, well, a lot of these people don't have any pyospermia and it'll still come back in pterococcus. And are you treating what you really think you're treating? And sometimes those um, can be uh, somewhat resistant sort of things too. So it can be difficult actually finding antibiotics that, that treat them. So again, you kind of go down a rabbit hole that may not be useful. Remember, you know, a lot of times for a prostatitis, the reasoning for antibiotics isn't necessarily because of a bacteria anyway. You know, sometimes there's kind of a natural anti-inflammatory effect that you're taking advantage of for it. Okay. So, so I mean, so, so you mentioned uh, the varicocele. Are you looking for something specific in, in I mean, let's say the patient has a grade two, grade three varicocele, something specific in the semiasis to say, hey, I'm going to do surgery on you or, or what prompts you to do a surgery? Yeah, the AUA guidelines are really useful here because, you know, they, they, they do kind of show our best literature for varicocele. So you're right. So usually the ultrasound that you say, you know, has like a grade one mild varicocele, that's probably not going to be useful um, because you know, there hasn't been any good evidence showing that that helps as far as, uh, you know, ultimate outcomes with the semen analysis and ultimate pregnancy. Grade two and grade three varicoceles, there is much better data for. And the AUA guidelines become very useful in incorporating that. So there's usually, if there is an actual symptomatic varicocele, there's usually signs and symptoms of that. Of course, the semen analysis being abnormal is the clearest sign. Uh, and usually what you see with that is a stress pattern. So you'll see again that oligosthenoteratosospermia, where you'll see kind of attenuated, kind of a lower, lower uh, motility, lower morphology, lower uh, concentration. Another big one is a greater than 20% difference in testicular size. So if you see that in association with a varicocele, that's a pretty strong indication for doing a, a, a varicocelectomy. Usually one of the things that we talk about, because one of the more common situations we find ourselves in is a postpubescent or early, you know, postpubescent male. So somebody that's just going to their pediatrician or going for a routine high school exam where they notice a varicocele. And in that case, of course, the, you know, the doc will say, hey, look, you have a varicocele. And remember 15%, 15, you know, depending on the study, around 15% of you know, men will have a, a clinical varicocele. You know, and of course, it's not responsible for 10 to 15% of all fertility issues. So you'll, you'll have a lot of these that, of course, we've all seen that, you know, there are no issues. You know, I've had patients, adult patients that said, well, they had, they told me I had a varicocele and now I have three kids and now I want a vasectomy. So, you know, it, it's not that necessarily because you have a varicocele that it, it necessarily leads to issues, but certainly at the first evidence of a varicocele and whenever the patient is ready, we would, you know, advise getting a semen analysis. And we advise following with semen analyses as, you know, at least, you know, every one to two years you know, that might be a little bit difficult for a lot of men. They may not do that, but at least if they, you know, have a couple where we can see a trend, if we see it kind of trending downward in an alarming way, that certainly would be an indication for doing a varicocelectomy. Okay. So most likely be preventive, but a patient that already has the varicocele, they already have the damage. They cannot have a kid. They're trying more than a year. How do you do the varicocelectomy? How much do you see the improvement? I mean, most of them get improvement or not? Half percent, I mean, half of them will get an improvement or? Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to patient selection. Now, this is where it becomes very, very tricky, though, um, because, of course, you can have 
more than one issue and more than one defect. You know, usually the biggest benefit for varicocele is kind of a patient that has uh, oligosthenospermia, not really to the point of becoming severe, but certainly kind of low. And you do a varicocelectomy and they start to become in normal counts. And you, sometimes you'll see that be very dramatic. I mean, sometimes you'll see, you know, semen parameters where total modal count is kind of, you know, below like somewhere between five and 10 million. And you do a varicocelectomy and it jumps up to a hundred million. Of course you say, well, that's great. Remember, there's also a, ver a cyclic variation to sperm. There's usually about a six-month cycle to sperm where basically over that six months, the, the sperm counts will kind of go up and down and up again. It's kind of like the stock market where there's kind of, you know, variations in, you know, kind of two to three-day variations, but over the course of six months, it'll kind of do a predictive sort of uh, frequency. So some of that repeating a semen analysis is just going to be because of that cyclic variation of sperm. But having said that, you know, those are kind of a little bit easier to identify. You know, you have a grade two or grade three varicocele, you have a 20% difference in testicular size, they have oligosthenospermia. Yeah, those benefit. The trickier ones are the ones that have, you know, either cryptozospermia or azospermia or really severe oligosthenospermia. And in those cases, when you do a varicocele, so that, that becomes a harder conversation. And that's one that, yeah, you, you talk with your patients and say, look, you know, we, we can do this and it may help, but it's not going to help you become fertile, whereas you're not before. I mean, it'd be very unlikely for that to happen. It can happen, but it's, it's rare. The more likely reason for doing that is to improve the odds of assisted reproduction. So, you know, for the, you know, azospermic case that you don't have a real good, um, you don't have another reason. So you do a karyotype, you do a Y chromosome microlesion. It's clearly non-obstructive azospermia based on testicular size and FSH. So, you know, the days of testicular biopsy to differentiate obstructive versus non-obstructive azospermia are way over. Uh, you know, you could differentiate that based on FSH and testicular size, you know, testicular size over 4.6 uh, centimeters and FSH less than uh, 7.6 would indicate a 96% positive predictive value of obstructive azospermia. And the converse, um, you know, testicular size less than 4.6 and FSH greater than 7.6 is about an 89% positive predictive value of non-obstructive azospermia. Having said that, you know, the, the biggest issue with doing a varicocele under those circumstances is that you don't expect it really to improve their sperm counts. But there is some literature to suggest that doing that and then afterwards doing a TESI or a micro TESI or, or even if, you know, they're, they're kind of subfertile, but they're able to do IVF just with ejaculated sperm, um, there is some data to suggest that that does improve outcomes. Because definitely, I mean, I'm sure you see them that they come to the office. Hey, the PCP tells me that I have a recusio. I want surgery so so that I can be fixed. And 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 they come with, with false expectations. And even with the ultrasound, with the sonogram. Hey, uh, there's it says that it, there's a varicocele there. Uh, you don't feel it, so a grade one. And, and they 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 think you're gonna do a miracle. Right, right. So there's that. Right. So there's the opposite side where you know it's kind of a small varicocele and there are other issues, right? And, you know, like I said, the guy that smokes marijuana every day and has a grade one varicocele says, you fix this and it's going to, you know, make me fertile. It's like, eh, there might be other things going on here. Where does Clomid uh, falls on, on all these algorithms? So, you know, based on those laboratory values that I was talking about before, um, that usually kind of defines what form of endocrine augmentation we do. Now, it's important to remember that anything we do now, we see the effect three months from now on average, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, semen analysis. And it can be very variable. You know, it could be anywhere from two months to five months, but on average, three months. 
So, you know, when we do something like clomiphene, really the thought process there is to create a better environment within the testes, right? So basically what you're doing there is kind of increasing testosterone in, by extension, increasing the intertesticular milieu to actually grow and divide sperm. So clomiphene is one way of doing it. And usually the dose we use is 50 milligrams every other day. You can also just have them split the pill and do 25 milligrams a day. It really doesn't matter either way. And it's important to emphasize if you're going to do that, that, listen, this is going to take, you know, it, it, you keep taking the medication because sometimes I'll say, look, we'll do lab work in two weeks and we'll see each other in three to four weeks to go over it. And uh, sometimes they say, well, I'm just going to take it for two weeks and I'm going to be good, you know, so you have to make sure to emphasize you got to keep taking it. But clomiphene is just one way of doing that. So, um, for example, if the estrogen, the testosterone to estrogen ratio is high, in other words, we look for a one to 10 ratio. So in other words, if the testosterone is 300 and the estradiol is you know, above 30, so say it's 40 or 50, then we'll start an astrazole. And um, you know, usually uh, that's another medication where you can start one milligram a day. My preference is to do it one milligram every other day. Again, you know, I worry a little bit about some of the secondary side effects with tendons and bones that you can get with an astrazole. And you know, oftentimes you don't need to go that high a dose on it. But it depends. It depends on the person and, you know, kind of the, the numbers too. You can do combinations. You can do different medications besides anastrozole. There are a bunch of different aromatase inhibitors. There's letrozole. There's, you know, there's aromasin. There, there, there are different things. And likewise, you know, tamoxifen's been used. There, there, there's, you know, there are many different medications out there. But, I, you know, the most commonly used are probably clomiphene and anastrozole or letrozole. Sometimes if you truly have hypopituitarism, if you truly have hypogonadic hypopituitary primary, I mean, secondary um, hypogonadism, then sometimes those may not work, right? So, you know, you may not be able to induce the pituitary to do anything, or they may have a condition where they have no pituitary hormones. So if you have a condition where, you know, you just either the, with maximum pituitary stimulation, or just simply you can't, you know, the, you, you have a true hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, then uh, sometimes you're relying on agents such as HCG human chorionic gonadotropin, with or without something like menopar or recombinant FSH. Uh, usually, I tend to start with HCG for three months before starting something like recombinant FSH or menopar or something like that. Reason being that I believe that it probably makes more sense to kind of create a better environment, to kind of, you know, prime the pump. In other words, I think if you start off immediately with uh, FSH, you may not be, you know, you may be asking the patient to take medication without you know, cost without effect initially. But regardless, you know, the problem with HCG can oftentimes be cost. It's very costly now. Um, it's difficult to obtain. A lot of that's because of the HCG diet that becomes a fad diet. So, you know, usually I, I, I try not to go immediately to HCG unless I absolutely have to. And for patients that have symptomatic low T, also with, with fertility issues, I mean, how do you approach that? What do you tell them? So I think, you know, sometimes um, you'll have a lot of patients that really um, have some side effects from things like clomiphene and anastrozole. They actually may have a, either testosterone may be great, but they may have a paradoxic decrease in libido. And sometimes that's difficult because we have done studies to quantitate that. And, you know, from the studies we've done, there doesn't seem to be any obvious difference between you know, getting your testosterone from endogenous stimulation with something like clomiphene or anastrozole versus direct testosterone. But for some people, some, sometimes it's just in their head or, you know, or maybe it's real, you know, it's tough to say. 
But for some patients, certainly anecdotally, that they, you know, they just have low libido, low erectile function when you try to stimulate with clomiphene or anastrozole. And for those, you know, usually I will go to something like HCG to try to increase their testosterone. Um, now, one uh, kind of important topic that we haven't really uh, touched on, and probably the, some of the, the biggest population is the testosterone replacement population that then want kids. Yeah. I, what do you tell them? Because I have seen some patients don't, I mean, we wait six months, it's still low. So, I mean, the, those, those patients really sometimes, they, they, it doesn't come back. Yeah, those sometimes are the most difficult patients because, you know, when I first started doing this, you know, I, I started, why is testosterone a controlled substance? You know, why is it on the same, you know, it's a schedule three, you know, so it's, you know, just right under things, you know, narcotics. And, you know, why, why would you do it's not a narcotic. It's not that addictive. And then after doing this for a while, I realized, okay, yeah, there's, there are plenty of people that are addicted to testosterone. And I think that, you know, part of the difficulty in a lot of these patients is that they just do not want to get off the testosterone. Uh, a lot of them, once they start exogenous testosterone, you know, they'll do it if they have to, but man, they, it is like pulling teeth. They really just do not want to get off of it. And it becomes difficult, you know, like you said, you try to take them off and just let them kind of, you know, come back. Most of them are on something like testosterone sipionate. And uh, as you know, the half-life of testosterone sipionate is about five days. So, you know, five half-lives, that's about 25 days. So that's when they're going to need her, right? Right before they actually start producing, if they start producing immediately. So you're talking at least a couple of months off the medication before they're going to start to feel like anything. And for some people, for some men, you know, that rely on it as for their energy, for their libido, for their exercise routine, for, you know, for a number of things, they, they just refuse to do it. And, you know, you'll actually, you know, you'll kind of catch them because you're checking these labs and you're checking their FSH level and they're always suppressed and you know they're not doing it. You know, so oftentimes I'll give them the choice of kind of doing concomitant HCG with the testosterone, telling them that, look, this isn't the fastest way to get sperm. You know, if you really want to do the fastest way, we need to, you know, cut off the testosterone and maybe at that point start HCG and then go from there. But sometimes that's also a uh, expensive proposition. You know, sometimes I'll tell them that, look, you know, if you're willing to wait a little bit for the sperm counts, we might be able to do this transition thing where we'll start HCG and use it concomitantly with testosterone. The other thing is, you know, for the patients I kind of buy into my preaching of patients to be off the testosterone. And then, you know, what I usually do is when they're off the testosterone for a while, we'll, I'll start something like clomiphene or anastrozole or even HCG um, immediately afterwards. But once they start producing sperm, you know, then they're very eager to get back on the testosterone. And so most of the time I say, look, you know, why, why don't you wait until you get pregnant and then, you know, uh, 13 weeks in, and then we can restart the testosterone. And some, for some of them, that's a bridge too far. So, you know, for some of them, they'll either save sperm that they can do IUI for, and you can cryopreserve sperm that way. And for some of them, they'll, they'll wait. And then when they're on testosterone again, I usually say, look, you know, why don't you take a little bit of HCG while you're on the testosterone? So at least to maintain some form of testicular production so that you're not going to have to redo this whole cycle again. And, um, you know, the, you talk to a lot of bodybuilders and, you know, I see a lot of those guys too, and they, they, they really don't want anything that I have to give. They kind of have their own things, but they'll often do different types of cycles where they'll cycle off testosterone and do different things like HCG. Now, sometimes they're doing concomitant clomiphene, which really doesn't make too much sense. 
But having said that, you know, they'll, they'll, they're, there's really kind of an awareness within the testosterone community that, look, you should, if you want kids, you know, you should really be doing at least some form of HCG, whether concomitant or cycles or whatever else. Yeah, for my part, I usually just took him and, well, hey, I, or, I oriented him about the kid part, the, the fertility part. Most of the time, like you said, they don't want to be off. They feel horrible when they're off the testosterone, so they just want to do what they, whatever they want. They want to ha- continue those high testosterone levels. You mentioned bodybuilders. They usually come to the office just for you to do labs. Yeah, that's right. Make sure they're not dying. Exactly, yeah. And even if you tell them that, you're like, you can't keep doing this, they're like, yeah, what do you know? Yeah, exactly. They've been using it for years. They know how to mix it. They they use the anastrozole to dose whatever they want. They, you know. Yeah, it's its own thing. You know, one of one of the other things that um, is important to us is uh, for the delayed puberty uh, crowd. For the um, for a lot of men that have delayed puberty for many different reasons, for whatever the reason, you know, a lot of times the pediatric endocrinologists will start them on testosterone replacement. Um, which really, you know, we, we try to convince them not to do. We, we prefer they start with HCG so they can induce testicular production of sperm before they kind of consider everything for fertility preservation. So that sometimes is still not a common thing for the pediatric endocrinologist to jump to. So a lot of urologists, you know, it becomes incumbent on us to kind of get that in there and have them try to do that before starting direct testosterone. And is it because testosterone is easier to get or? Yeah, I think that a lot of them aren't really necessarily thinking about fertility at the time. Thinking of the future. Yeah, exactly. I think that a lot of them are really just looking for something that's going to work fast and cheap and easy and kind of get the kid to where they want to be. And if there's a fertility issue in the future, they may tell them about it and say, look, you'll deal with it when, you know, if you want kids in the future. So Samir, let, let, let's talk about a little bit of the COVID. I mean, is it the hot topic now? I'm sure you, you get a, a lot of questions about what is the, the COVID, I mean, is the vaccine doing stuff for, for fertility? What have you read? What, what's going on with that? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's a really good question because I get the question all the time. And, you know, the problem is that a lot of times, you know, what you say or, you know, it, of course, the, you know, the vaccine problem that we have is, you know, more than just kind of, a, you know, an information problem, it becomes a cultural issue. So I, I had, you know, I'll frame this in the story, you know, before we all shut down and had this code black where we can't operate on anything elective. But, you know, right before then, uh, I had a patient that I was going to do a microsurgical testicular extraction on, a microtessy on. And as you know, our policy is to get uh, COVID five days before. And his COVID was negative, um, but he wasn't vaccinated. And he came in that morning with a fever. And so, of course, our policy is to rapid you know, tests, and he came back COVID positive at that point, which then ends up being a real problem because his wife is 41. So the, you know, her, her window for having viable eggs is really measured in months. Yeah. And um, the problem is that we can't operate on this guy, right? So we can't do an elective surgery with a guy that's COVID positive. And the other problem with that is that he has a fever, right, from COVID. So it's reasonable to expect, you know, usually with any kind of fever, it's reasonable to expect uh, sperm counts. They don't always, but they can drop. And it's usually a three-month window before they start coming back up again. So especially if you're doing a microtessie, if they're spending the money for a microtessie, you want to do those under optimal conditions. So, you know, this guy ends up kind of getting screwed, right? Because, you know, the, it's going to be three months before this guy can actually do a microtessie. 
And despite me, you know, saying, you know, look to the, you know, to whoever would listen, I said, look, you know, I don't know if we can make an exception here because, you know, he, we're not going to be able to do this for three months and his wife isn't going to be able to, you know, it's going to be three months, you know, since they, you know, uh, until we're going to be able to do in vitro. And that may kind of take them out of the reproductive window and asking her to vitrify her eggs right now may be a cost that they don't want to do because if we don't find sperm with the microtessie, they may not want to do that. Um, so it creates all these issues that you, you wouldn't, you know, the guy would have just gotten vaccinated, chances he'd be, you know, there's a good chance he'd be okay. The official uh, policy for um, ASRM, American Society of Reproductive Medicine, is that the vaccine does not cause uh, fertility issues, male or female. And the data we have so far, again, you know, it's hard. That data has to be a little more long-term and robust, but at least the preliminary data we have would suggest that's true. A couple of things. So we did a study looking at the presence of COVID in semen uh, versus the sperm. And, you know, there, there was some question early on uh, with some, you know, fairly questionable data as to whether COVID-19 was actually found in semen or where, whether it was found in sperm. And, you know, it, as you know, for, with the physiology of sperm, it is very difficult for viruses to actually get into sperm. You know, sperm are essentially de DNA delivery devices. They don't have a lot of exogenous activity with their outside environment other than to provide the propulsion for them to move forward. You know, it's a string of mitochondria and you know, DNA at the head and some vacuums. So, you know, we really haven't found a virus. We can find a virus in semen all the time, but we haven't found it in sperm. So anyway, we did a validation study where we looked at that and, there, and you know, pretty well in people that were COVID positive and there, there's not COVID in sperm. So even COVID infections are not something that's transmissible by sperm. Now, that's not to say they can't be sexually transmitted, right? Because usually the intimacy required for intercourse is going to, you know, allow for much more routes of COVID transmission. But as far as in sperm, that, that's not true. It's not in sperm. Having said that, a COVID infection certainly can decrease sperm counts, um, just like any other infection would. You know, the degree of infection would matter just because sperm is very insensitive, uh, very sensitive to the global environment. So any kind of infection, no matter what it is, will, will drop sperm counts. So a uh, reason for uh, people to get vaccinated, because, you know, very unlikely that you'll have a significant decrease with a vaccine, but very likely with a COVID infection that's symptomatic, that you will get a decrease. So for the conspiracy theories that are saying that vaccines are, are, are sort of population control by decreasing Sperm count, there's, there's no evidence for that. <laughs> that is true. And I, and also the same conspiracy theorists that say that the mRNA in the mRNA vaccine somehow get integrated into your DNA and integrated into your sperm DNA. We get a lot of that too. In fact, you know, one of the things I am, I am as a medical director of uh, Cryos, which is, you know, largest sperm bank in the country, uh, or largest sperm bank in the world, I should say, not necessarily in the country. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of assisted reproduction and we see a lot of people that want pre-COVID sperm. And it is simply because, you know, despite us reassuring that, look, COVID's not in sperm, they go through a quarantine anyway, and we test all the samples. They kind of feel that if there's somebody that's been exposed to COVID, that that somehow gets integrated into the DNA and that can be passed on. That's not true. Of course, that doesn't happen. <laughs> but again, you know, it is something that you'd be surprised what, you know, people think. So, Samir, uh, I think that, that's, that, that we're good for today. I guess the, 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 the question is, 
when should I send the patients to you? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so certainly, you know, I, I mean, whenever you want is really the answer, but you know, certainly if there is the condition where, you know, there's oligostheno or, you know, spermia or, you know, kind of a subfertility sort of thing that can't be managed easily. I mean, if you feel comfortable doing a, a good varicocelectomy on a guy with varicocele, I think you're fine managing that. But if it really is kind of a subfertile sort of specimen, and at that point, you know, they, they really are trying to have kids and they, obviously they wouldn't be coming to you if they didn't want kids. But if, you know, they're at the point where they really want, you know, some options, that, that, that's probably the right time to see me. And definitely the importance of a good semen analysis, not just, I mean, you, you need to do one in a, in a, in a place that, that they, they do that all the time, not, not, just, not, not just in your regular lab. Yeah, it ends up making a big difference in terms of what you're actually dealing with. And like you mentioned, I mean, most of the time those places are usually expensive. Insurance don't cover that one. And that's why people end up doing, going to the other one. The, the, uh, maybe at the end, it costs more. That's right. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, it ends up being the case where sometimes uh, cheap ends up being expensive. Okay, so Sammy, so thank you for being here. I didn't know you were the medical director for, for the sperm banking. So, so we have definitely a, a lot of issue to cover, I mean, a lot of topic to cover. Uh, so, so hopefully you'll be back and we can talk some more about infertility. Yeah, I'd love to. Anytime. Thanks, Sabit.